Good morning. My name is Heather, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to Littler's Workplace Policy Institute conference call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. If you should need assistance during the call, please press star zero on your telephone keypad, and an operator will come back to assist you. Thank you. Mr. Michael Wayman, you may begin your conference. Thank you, Heather. Good morning, everyone. Sorry for that brief delay there this morning, but welcome to today's Insider Briefing Call. My name is Mike Lehman, Manager of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute here in Washington. Thank you for joining us this morning. Last Monday, the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission issued new enforcement guidance on pregnancy discrimination. To talk about the guidance, our special guest this morning is Barry Hartstein. He's a shareholder in Littler's Chicago office and co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity Practice Group. Barry has earned a national reputation for a career that includes more than 30 years of counseling and representing employers in a broad range of labor and employment matters, but he has particular expertise dealing with the EEOC on both a local and national level. He was invited by the EEOC chair to address the commission at a meeting in Washington on the legal standards governing employers' consideration of criminal arrest and conviction records, which became guidance a couple of years ago. For more information on today's uh, pregnancy guidance, there was also a link in this morning's reminder email that you can access. But Barry, welcome to the insider briefing this morning. Thanks, Michael. So Barry, is it, uh, let's start at the top. Is it illegal to discriminate against pregnant workers today? And what obligations have employers toward employees who are pregnant? Yes, good. First of all, good morning, everybody, uh, and we apologize for the delay. Uh, as all of you know, in, in 1978, um, some 30-odd years ago, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was amended, um, or, or enacted, really, which essentially amended Title VII's definition to make it clear that sex discrimination included discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. But what was interesting about the, uh, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, or PDA as it's called, it really didn't create a separate cause of action based on pregnancy status. Rather, it merely concluded that pregnancy discrimination fell within the prohibition regarding sex discrimination as outlined in Section 703 of the Act. So the gist of it is pregnancy discrimination, pure and simple, is, uh, is illegal, as we all know. The question is how broadly and how should that be interpreted, which is what the guidance, which we'll talk about this morning, discussed. Great. And before we discuss the substance of last week's guidance, Barry, the actions of an administrative agency like the EEOC confuse a lot of people. So. Does this guidance have the force of law, and in other words, do employers have to pay attention to this? Well, you know, the, the two answers to your questions are no, it does not have the force of law, but yes, employers do have to pay attention to it. It's, it's really similar to the guidance on criminal history that came out in April of 2012. And as many of you recall, when the EOC adopted that guidance, the commission expressly explained that the intended audience was really threefold. Those in the field who work for the OC enforcing Title VII, uh, secondly, employers, so they could actually conform their conduct to the guidance, and third, a potential claimants to advise them of their legal rights under the, under the, you know, basically in dealing with criminal history. It's really no different in terms of the way it's been approached with this particular guidance. So, uh, 
the bottom line is an employer that does not follow the guidance may be at risk with the OC. I think the only additional caveat I would make is really the ultimate question may be what's the actual force of law if it were ever challenged. And if any of you, uh, we, today, it's, that's really beyond the scope of today's call, but there's a great discussion of that in the Third Circuit's decision of L versus SEPTA. Uh, 479 F3rd 232, the uh, uh, Third Circuit in 27, which uh, 2007, which really discussed the, the former criminal history guidance, Michael. Great. L versus SEPTA? That's correct. Okay. Uh, okay. Now, Barry, can you tell us what does the EEOC guidance say? What will change from employers moving forward? In, in the few minutes, Michael, that I have to highlight the guidance, let me point out that the July uh, 14th guidance uh, and basically the related documents total nearly 50 pages. There's a one-page press release. There's a three-page fact sheet for small employers. There's a 10-page Q&A, and there's 35 pages of guidance that includes 20 pages of text and 15 pages of, of footnotes. So there's, there's really a, a lot there to chew on. And as many of you recall, the EOC strategic plan that was adopted in December 2012 included pregnancy discrimination as one of its priorities. And more specifically, uh, when the EOC announced its six priorities with the strategic enforcement plan, they explained that one focus was emerging and developing issues, which expressed and included accommodating pregnancy-related limitations under the ADA and the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. And this new guidance really is a direct result, and I best describe it as a more laser-focused approach on pregnancy-related issues. The guidance essentially is divided into four parts. The first part, which is what I describe as the, uh, the, the nuts and bolts in dealing with uh, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act and how the OC will now be interpreting it with both disparate treatment claims and disparate impact claims. And it also includes the EOC's pronouncement that reasonable accommodation may now be required for pregnant workers. Uh, part two of the guidance, uh, which is a, a few pages, talks about the impact of the expanded definition uh, of protected disabilities under the ADA based on the impact of the 2008 amendments, which essentially uh, where the, the EOC stated the ADA may now cover temporary disabilities, uh, thus making it far more easily to cover disabilities stemming from pregnancy coupled with the really the obligation of reasonable accommodation. The third part really just mentions other legal requirements unrelated to the PDA and ADA affecting pregnant workers, such as the FMLA, uh, the executive order covering uh, federal workers, prohibiting discrimination based on an individual status as a parent, reasonable break time for nursing mothers based on the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and unique state laws such as California state law that, of course, requires four months of unpaid uh, pregnancy leave. But turning to, to part one, which is the heart and soul, certain sections aren't particularly controversial and state the obvious involving disparate treatment based on either a current pregnancy, a past pregnancy, planned pregnancy, and stereotypes, and of course prohibits harassment based against pregnant workers. But the focal point, and this is really where the rubber hits the road, is 
the statutory language that pregnant workers are required to be treated the same for all employment-related purposes as other persons not so affected based on their ability or inability to work. And in English, what that really means is the key issue is who are the proper comparators under the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Historically, the courts took the view that uh, pregnant workers are basically to be treated the same as others with non-work-related disabilities. So, for example, if someone injured themselves off the job, the, the question would be, are, would, are pregnant workers treated the same regarding such things as paid time off, available light duty, and so forth? The EOC now takes a more expansive view taking the view that the proper comparators are anyone with similar work restrictions, such as a light-duty restriction uh, based on lifting, lifting requirements, and could actually include those with a disability protected under the American with Disabilities Act. And as a result, the guidance explains that pregnant employees may require other kinds of workplace adjustments similar to accommodations provided uh, for individuals with disabilities under the ADA, such as more frequent breaks, keeping water bottles at a workstation, using a stool for jobs generally performing uh, while standing and so forth. So it's truly essentially created a requirement of reasonable accommodation dealing with pregnancy. And the second prong essentially is disparate impact. And certainly reading the guidance, it raises the ante in terms of the risks involving potential disparate impact claims or adverse, the adverse impact based on rules that have, uh, have essentially an adverse impact on, on pregnant workers. And, and two examples stand out. One would be a lifting requirement. So if a company has a 50-pound lifting requirement but someone couldn't do it due to pregnancy, if that requirement disproportionately excludes pregnant workers, then an employer would be required to demonstrate that it's job-related and consistent with business necessity. As disturbing, they talked about uh, such things as a 10-day cap on leave or even a policy for new workers that denied leave during the first year of employment. And they also concluded that that, too, potentially could have a disparate impact unless an employer can demonstrate it's job-related and consistent with business necessity. And I think the, the, the last couple things I've mentioned in terms of the overview is the, the guidance does talk about the expansion of, defin, of the definition of the ADA based on the 2008 amendments and essentially highlights that those with temporary disabilities are not, you know, may very well be protected. And as a consequence, disabilities relating to pregnancy uh, may be covered even though they're temporary which, of course, would once again create the automatic requirements of reasonable accommodation. And, and finally, for purposes of the overview, the guidance lays out 31 best practices. And I'm not going to go through all 31, but five do stand out because they demonstrate the potential impact of this guidance. The first is that uh, employers need to look whether restrictive leave policies such as dealing with probationary employees disproportionately impact pregnant workers. Second, you need to ensure that light-duty policies are structured to provide pregnant employees access to light-duty, equal to that provided to others, including those with a disability. Third, you may need to temporarily reassign job duties 
that employees are unable to perform because of pregnancy or related medical conditions. Fourth, you have to have a process for expeditiously considering reasonable accommodation requests made by employees with pregnancy-related uh, disabilities. And five, employers need to state explicitly in any written accommodation policy that reasonable accommodations may be available to individuals with temporary disabilities or impairments, including impairments related to pregnancy. So wow. It, so it's a mouthful, Michael. Barry, it is complex. And why does it seem like the things always get more confusing when the government issues quote unquote guidance, right? So, uh, so here we are. And because it's uh, Monday morning, I want to put an even finer point on the controversy because our mutual friend, EEOC Commissioner Vicki Lipnick, who was a terrific guest on the Insider Briefing call here uh, back in May, uh, as well as uh, Commissioner Connie Barker both voted against this guidance when it was issued last week. So just, you know, briefly, why is this guidance controversial? You know, in a few ways. One, and I think that both uh, Commissioners Barker and Lipnick echoed the same general views. First of all, they really failed to make the draft available for public review and comment. Second, they questioned the timing of it because the issue of who are the appropriate comparators is actually pending before the Supreme Court in a case referred to as Young versus UPS, which the Supreme Court literally just uh, granted cert to on July 1. Um, and third, they basically take exception with the view that what DOC has done is they essentially have legislated this notion and creating the notion that reasonable accommodation is required for pregnant workers without any legal analysis or support. Uh, and there is more to it than that, but and certainly those are the three things that stand out in terms of why they take very strong exception with this guidance. Great. Okay, and, and final question, Barry, uh, can you tell us when this guidance becomes effective? And if, line, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Well, just that, when does this guidance become effective for employers? Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is this is the EOC's current view, but at the same time what makes this so complex is that there currently is a case that's front and center in this matter uh, called Young versus uh, UPS. And in that case, it really dealt with who are the appropriate comparators. And to give you an example, in that case, they, the, the court or dealt with a case where a person got light duty only in three circumstances, an on-the-job injury with something, someone required accommodation under the ADA or someone lost their DOT certification. But if someone got injured off the job, or someone was pregnant, they were treated the same way. They didn't get light duty, and they were required to take time off. So mm -hmm. the Supreme Court essentially is going to be dealing with this very issue of who are the comparators. Should yeah. someone who's a pregnant worker only really be compared with those who really have an off-the-job sort of injury, or does it really open this new Pandora's box that pregnancy has to be treated uh, like a disability under the ADA. And so in some respects, while we may have to deal with the guidance right now, depending on how the Supreme Court addresses this issue in the UPS case, we may back, be back to the drawing boards. Right. Okay, and finally, Barry, as you mentioned, if employers were given no opportunity to comment on this guidance ahead of time, what can employers that may be concerned about the guidance do now? 
you know, I, at the end of the day, we know full well this is how the OC is going to enforce it. So what it really comes down to is this issue is ultimately be a matter of subject to litigation. So when we get challenged and we see the OC starting to bring the lawsuits in this area, uh, that's where the rubber is going to hit the road. And so it's going to be kind of twofold. One, waiting to see what happens with the UPS case and what basically uh, taking us down the road as the EOC continues to challenge uh, more employers in this area and brings litigation in this area. Great. Well, Barry, thank you so much for uh, boiling down such a complex uh, uh, topic with such a great summary, and just thank you for joining us this morning on the Insider Briefing. Yeah, I think the only additional thing I will add, we recognize this is a very complex issue, hard to do in 20 minutes, but we will be having a webinar on this issue in the week of August 11. We'll have more details that will be coming forward on that. But uh, that's part of the reason why we recognize and appreciate the fact that there's uh, almost too much to uh, tee up in 20 minutes. Yep. Thanks, Barry. We will, uh, we will provide details of that August 11th webinar for people in our upcoming Friday uh, email at the end of this week. Thanks again, Barry. My pleasure. All right. Now, looking ahead to the week, here are some things to be aware of in Washington. Both houses of Congress are in session this week. Uh, importantly, President Obama today will sign an executive order impacting federal contractors, uh, yet another executive order uh, impacting federal contractors. Today will be related to non-discrimination for sexual orientation and gender identity. And the U.S. House Education and the Workforce Committee will hold a hearing on improving the federal wage and hour regulatory structure at 10 a.m. on Wednesday morning, July 23rd. If you have any questions about the pregnancy non-discrimination issue or any of these other employment or labor law or policy topics, feel free to comment or contact me and you can be connected to a subject matter expert here at Littler like Barry. Uh, thanks for joining this morning's Insider Briefing. The last Insider Briefing call for the summer will be next Monday. So we'll hope to talk with you at 9.30 Eastern next Monday, next week. Have a great week, everybody. This concludes today's conference call. You may now just connect.